0: What does it mean to be called crazy in a crazy world? Listen to Madness Radio, Voices and Visions from Outside Mental Health. Sponsored by Peer Run Support Communities, Freedom Center, The Icarus Project, and Portland Hearing Voices. Madness Radio can be heard on FM stations on the Pacifica Radio Network and is online at kboo.fm slash madnessradio. If you're just tuning in, this is Madness Radio and we're speaking with Matt Samet. He's a freelance writer and editor who lives near Boulder, Colorado. He's a former professional rock climber who was diagnosed with panic, depression, and bipolar and battled benzodiazepine addiction for 13 years. Matt is the author of Death Grip: A Climber's Escape from Benzo Madness. Welcome to Madness Radio. This is your host Will Hall. Today, my guest is Matt Samet. Matt is a freelance writer and editor. His stories have appeared in Climbing Magazine and Outside and Backpacker. He lives near Boulder, Colorado, and he's a former professional rock climber who was diagnosed with panic, depression, and bipolar disorder, and for 13 years uh, battled an addiction to prescribe benzodiazepines. Matt has now been off of all psychiatric medications for six years, and he just released a new memoir, which is called Death Grip, A Climber's Escape from Benzomadness. So welcome to Madness Radio, Matt Samet.
1: Thanks, Will. Thanks for having me on.
0: Matt, you've been through a really inspiring story of recovery from benzodiazepine addiction, and I want to congratulate you both on having made it to the other side and being off of the medications that were you were struggling with for so many years, and also this really powerful book that you've uh, just come out with, Death Grip, about your whole um, experience, and I think that more people really need to hear about benzodiazepine addiction and the problems with prescribed psychiatric medications.
1: Thanks, Will. I, I feel fortunate, to be honest, to, to have survived and to be able to tell the tale the way I have, so yeah, it's definitely good to be here, good to be on the other side.
0: And uh, I wanna get into the story of how it really began with you through your uh, passion for, for rock climbing. But give us just a, a brief sense of what it is that we're talking about here. I mean, what were the medications that you were addicted to? What did they do to you? And then how was it that you came out of it?
1: I was given the, this class of tranquilizers known as benzodiazepines for panic attacks and a, a quote unquote panic disorder. You know, what they do in the body is they potentiate the the action of the calming neurotransmitter GABA, so they sort of still the nervous system to a certain degree. The most common forms are Valium, Xanax, Clonopin, Ativan, you know, these are probably the the names that people recognize. At different times, I was on and off antidepressants, mood stabilizers like lithium, anti-epileptics like Neurontin, Trileptal they tried antipsychotics on me, you know, they were just sort of throwing meds at me there for a while. You know, what happened with me is kind of tangled, you know, at one point I had abused um, Valium, which wasn't prescribed to me, but the prescribed benzos, you know, started out small with just little doses to take here and there if I was having a high anxiety day or to stop a panic attack. But basically from 1998 until 05, I was on them continuously daily. The idea was that this was a sort of prophylactic treatment you know to prevent panic attacks and so during that time I went from 2 milligrams of Ativan a day to 3 to 4, switched to clonopin. by the time I realized I'd had enough I was on 4 milligrams of clonopin a day which is a lot it doesn't sound like a lot but it is a lot and that was in early 2005 and at that point I, I began to taper so I did not get off until December of '05,
0: and your withdrawal process was really quite horrendous coming off of those drugs
1: yes it was it was hellish I mean the thing is is that I don't think I was an anomaly and that my withdrawal was was hellish I just think I didn't know what to expect you know what happened is to me is as I worked on a taper with my psychiatrist at a rate that he agreed sounded fine you know, probably was much slower than what he would have recommended. You know, but over the course of the, let's say, nine to ten months that I tapered, my anxiety got worse and worse and worse until eventually I became housebound. And during this period, because I'd entered what I now recognize was a chemically very perilous and fragile state, you know, I kept turning to the same doctor and to other doctors because I thought there was something profoundly wrong with me, not just, oh, this is what it's going to be like when you go to taper these these highly addictive drugs that you've been on for years. So, during that time, they put me on and off so many other meds and uh I was hospitalized three times and all these other diagnoses were coming at me. So, you know, I think what what made it especially bad was not only the symptoms, which are which are bad enough, but not being told that these were simply symptoms, but being told that this was how I feel when I'm quote unquote off meds. And then also being made very, very sick by these other chemical agents that were often given to me against my will.
0: There was an unwillingness or an inability of the doctors that you were seeing to say, look, these are all withdrawal symptoms of the drugs. They were really saying, well, this is really your panic disorder, or this is really your bipolar, this is your underlying mental illness, rather than saying, wow, this is an effect of the medications that you've been given.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. There was zero acknowledgement that benzos could cause anything that they were causing. I mean, what I kept being told by all these people, from the doctors to the nurses on down, was that I had the worst reaction to going off benzos of anyone they'd ever seen, which, you know, to me, it just seems like total BS.
0: Because that's actually quite common. I mean, I'm contacted by many, many people, and we've actually interviewed uh, some on Madness Radio who have struggled in similar ways with a horrendous withdrawal process and just terrible, terrible experience coming off of of benzodiazepines, whether it's Xanax or Valium or Ativan or any any of them can have really severe withdrawal effects coming off.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's absolutely true. I mean, the doctor I was working with basically, I think without even realizing what he was admitting, would just keep telling me, well, he'd seen other people try, but then they'd get lower in their dose and freak out and go back on, which to me, right there, is clearly evidence that I wasn't an outlier, that I just happened to stick with it because I wanted my life back. And this quote unquote anxiety expert therapist I was seeing kept saying, well, Every person she'd worked with who came in wanted help getting off benzos and ended up in the hospital, which again said to me, the message is wrong. The message that, that if you're experiencing extreme anxiety while tapering means that there's something wrong with you is, is completely backwards. I mean, if someone had said, this is extreme anxiety, but this is probably. The correct thing to feel because your body's readjusting. Then I, I certainly would have had a better toolkit for coping with it.
0: Well, I think there's a refusal to recognize that this is this is basically a substance addiction, and that once we understand that this is an addiction to a highly addictive substance, then we say, well, of course, when you withdraw from alcohol, when you withdraw from heroin, when you withdraw from cocaine, you go through a horrendous period of of adjustment. Even coffee, for example, will give you problems with, it's also addictive, and caffeine will give you withdrawal effects. And I, I think that because we've become so entranced by this idea of a mental illness, that the drug is treating, we lose track of the way in which the drug itself creates the problem. So Matt, let's, let's talk about your story about how you began this whole process because you were very, very passionate as a rock climber, and this was a love that you have and, and still have, and then yet that passion started to become a problem, and that became your entry point into psychiatric drug prescription. So tell us about that.
1: You know, I basically sabotage myself. I've always loved climbing since I was a teenager and um, and rock climbing in particular. I've sort of done a little bit of everything. And and in rock climbing, quote-unquote performance rock climbing, where you're you're trying to sort of push your, your, your standards. In free climbing, which is just simply moving up the rock with fingers and toes, you're not weighting the rope for progress, but you have the rope on to catch a fall. Uh, it helps to be lean. The strength to weight ratio is, is very important because you're hanging, clearly you're hanging all your weight off your fingers. Um, your forearm muscles tire out pretty quickly, especially on an overhanging rocks. So it, you know, you kind of want to be a light little monkey. And um, I took that a little bit too much to heart and then really just didn't eat for years and years and years just trying to keep my weight lower than it, it should be. And
0: so what is it about climbing that inspires you so much? What do you love so much about being on the rock and scrambling up and grabbing the next hold and making it to the top? What is it that's so incredibly compelling to you about that?
1: You know, there's a lot of things that spoke to me about climbing. Well, I suppose number one is the beauty of the places you get to visit. You're seeing these places and you're getting a view of the world that is completely unique. I mean, we all see cliffs. We all know what they are. You know, you can drive into Yosemite and And there's El Capitan right there. And it's amazing to see whether you're a climber or not. But then to be up on something like that as a human being, I think, gives you a very unique and humbling um, perspective on the world. So that's always been a big part of it. I just simply love being in the mountains. I think also the, the movement, you know, like anything, whether you're a cellist or a fly fisherman or a target shooter or a mogul skier. There's that sort of flow and that kinesthetic pleasure you, you derive from your activity. And I think in climbing I've noticed that if I don't climb for a week, I start to get kinda of twitchy like my muscles crave it. So I think there's just a there was a certain connection with that gymnastic aspect of, of climbing as well. It just it feels good to my body for whatever reason.
0: And what part of it really drove you, or maybe there's something inside of you that drove you to that performance part of just wanting to really get better and better and better at it in terms of speed and endurance and challenge?
1: You know, I think a big part of it was perfectionism, which was something I'd always been dealing with as a kid. I always tried to get the best grades and this and that. So I thought, well, in rock climbing perfectionism means that you climb the hardest. I do also know that in climbing, the harder you climb, the better the climbs you can get on. It's simply the nature of geology. I mean, harder climbs climb blanker pieces of rock and wilder spots. So the better you are, the more access you have. I mean, it's probably like surfing. You know, the better you are at surfing, the more access you have to the wildest waves of the world. So the better you are at climbing, you know, the more access you have to just these crazy crazy pieces of rock. So I think that that was part of it.
0: And that really led you to start starving yourself in order to have this strength to weight ratio that would allow you to climb better.
1: It did. I moved to Boulder in the early 1990s and this is a a main climbing town in the United States. You know, a main town for outdoor athletics and in the early 90s climbing What's called sport climbing, which is the bolt protected gymnastic climbing, was was a pretty new thing, and and people did not know much about training and and much about diet and much about how to even approach this. You know, it was barely five seven years old. And so I moved to Boulder, and kind of everyone was really skinny, and the big thing was like not eating fat and seeing how thin you are, and you know, we're all kind of going around with our shirts off, and you know, in retrospect, it was all pretty silly. People know I think a lot more now about how to eat properly and then train a little harder. You know, so It's like, so what if you're carrying 5 or 10 uh, extra pounds? You just train a little harder. But back then, yeah, everyone just thought there was just this whole sort of ethos of all, yeah, I'm basically anorexia in a way, F- food limiting, limiting your intake, limiting the types of calories.
0: And that started to catch up with you because that can really wreak havoc on your body and your brain and your emotions if you're not feeding yourself properly.
1: Yeah, I did. You know, I remember before I, I really started having panic attacks that same year, I would just, uh, during periods when I, when I ate the least, I remember having this all encompassing sort of sense of, of dread. And I, I could never figure out why. I just knew it was there. You know, I didn't make the connection that it had to do with my poor diet. I mean, probably with not getting enough fat. I just thought, wow, you know, I'm, I'm sort of scared of
0: everything right now. Were there other things that were contributing to your anxiety, do you think? Well,
1: you know, I'd experienced, when I was 15, agoraphobia, uh, where I grew up down in Albuquerque. I, I'd stopped going to school, I'd transferred to a public school, and I was scared, and I'd been jumped a bunch, because I was kind of a punk rocker skate kid. So, you know, I think one th- connection therein is that I've always, at least starting from that period, felt alienated from if not intimidated by sort of mainstream society I mean which I think is a logical reaction at this point I mean look at the, the sort of garbage world we live in you know, run by idiots and then you know riddled with violence and and all this so but at that point I thought maybe I was wrong to feel that way now of course I, I don't care but you know climbing got me up and away and out of all that and so I think that was another reason I latched onto it so so tightly It was like well I feel good when I'm climbing. I don't feel anxious. I don't feel like some crazy guy is going to jump me with a knife, or I'm not dealing with some inane, stupid scenario, or sitting in traffic. It got into me that way, you know. It's sort of a world apart, and so I think it it was natural to sort of pour my obsessive energy into it.
0: And at what point did the anxiety really start to reach a a limit that you felt like, look, this is something I've got to get some help with, or I've got to To change? When I was
1: 21, around spring break, I think 1992, I'm sorry, winter break, uh, 1992, I started to have panic attacks, which I'd never had before. I'd experienced anxiety, but I'd never had, you know, a panic attack.
0: And what was a panic attack like for you? Can you give us a sense of that?
1: Oh, they were horrible. Um, I mean, when I first started having them, I didn't know what they were, which I know is, is how it happens to everyone. That's why it's called a panic attack. You know, it's an attack of your panic <coughs> response out of the blue. The total lack of control was was horrifying to me. You know, I'd have these, just this sort of sensation that, that death or doom was imminent come over me. The world would get really still and quiet, and then I'd just kind of... you know, freak out. Like my heart would start slamming. My hands were shaking. I was sweating. I'd turn white. I felt like I had to run, but I didn't know where I had to run. I mean, it was, it was almost a mystical and spiritual experience in that it took me so close to the the boundaries of what I felt like my psyche could withstand. So yeah, they were terrifying at first.
0: At some point it got so bad that you decided to seek help from uh, doctors. Is that what happened? I
1: did, yeah. It was my sophomore year in college, and I, I actually went home for Christmas break and didn't seek help while I was there, because I just, I don't know, I was just freaked out. I had been in a hospital before I was 15, and I really didn't want to have much to do with therapy or psychiatry, you know, ever again. But it just, it had gotten so bad, I could, again, barely leave the house. So I returned to Colorado, and I... I found a, a good psychologist who actually helped me a lot, but you know, part of that also was a referral onto a psychiatrist, so that would have been my first sort of tangle with meds. I'd been on like an antidepressant for a few days when I was 15 and got a rash and, and, and been off it, but until that point in my life, I'd never really been on psychiatric medication.
0: So you started to see this psychologist, and then what happened What happened next?
1: So he he was very helpful, and we had a workbook, and it helped me get a hold of my panic symptoms pretty well. Um, I saw a psychiatrist and we were trying out different antidepressants. SSRIs were just booming then. I mean, this was the early 90s, right? So we have the whole...
0: Prozac and the blockbuster antidepressants, the new wave of antidepressants that came out.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I ended up, I think, on Paxil was the only one I could tolerate. And even that was at the minimal dose. It was at 10 milligrams. But I took it And he also gave me some benzos to take, some lorazepam or Ativan to take as needed. And you know, I'd never had a benzo before, and I was kind of scared to take them. And then one night I took one uh, just out of curiosity, and they did work at first. You know, they did work. Any sort of anxious, rushing thoughts I was having were were simply eradicated. By the action of these pills. So that would be the first time I
0: ever took a benzo. That must have been a pretty miraculous feeling. Wow, you take this pill and it's all eradicated. It's just not there.
1: Yeah, it, it did. It was um to use a cliche, right? It was too good to be true. And I think I had some awareness of that too. I was like, wow, if if this does this, this simply, you know, without much or really any effort on my part, then I need to be very cautious about about these pills because there's there's got to be a flip side to it
0: well i think that's kind of common sense if you if you think of them in terms of substances because i mean drinking alcohol can be a wonderful experience doing a line of cocaine or your first heroin can be just these positive wow this is so and then you think well wait a second this is a this is a drug okay Of, of course it has the positive side because that's the appeal of it but we know that there's a huge cost But then if you're taking a psychiatric medication that's prescribed, somehow you get to think that that truth doesn't hold because the psychiatric medication that, well, maybe it is just dealing with my disorder or my illness or the symptom of uh, anxiety or or whatever it is.
1: Yeah, I I agree. I mean, I think... uh this, the first doctor I saw was, was actually, you know, he was good. He said, be careful with these. You know, they'll work, but they're addictive. So he, he told me, you know, so I can't deny that I was given that knowledge. But I do think there's also some sort of strange pact that you enter into between psychiatrist and patient, you know, maybe especially with these, depending on the awareness level of both parties, in which you say, well there's a downside but because it's a quote-unquote medication we're going to give this a shot anyway and I think that's a pretty common scenario you know people sort of jump on that that train with their doctor and then later when it becomes clear that the pills are problematic the doctor at that point what I've seen is you know sort of disavows any any knowledge of these pills actually having a downside. But I think that's absolutely right. When when you paint it in this light, which I th- believe is the correct one, that this is a substance, and whether it's used or abused, there's going to be a price, then, yeah, suddenly things become much
0: clearer. So, Matt, you were told, well, this is addictive. But were you really painted a clear picture of the kind of danger that you were in if you continued to to stay taking these medications? I mean, were you really given, because there's addictive and there's addictive. I mean, chocolate is addictive and then there's heroin addictive. And actually the benzodiazepines have a worse addiction profile even than heroin.
1: I certainly wasn't told they were worse than heroin, no. I mean, you know how it is, it's a 15 minute med checkup. You get your first one hour meeting with a doctor, takes your history and after that it's 15 minutes. And you know, mainly it was just, I'm not gonna give you more than 10 because I don't want you to take them every day because there's some risk for tolerance and addiction. But never say you take these every day for years, you'll be in hell, no. No one ever said that so explicitly.
0: So what happened next? So you were given this prescription for Ativan. You were given some cautions, but when you took it, you were like, wow, this really works. It gets rid of my anxiety. This, this Ativan really is something that's treating my, my panic. So then what happened?
1: Well, I, I got myself into real trouble my senior year in college, 95, 96. You know, by that point, I discovered that, yeah, these benzos work and that I mean, I should just admit it, I did like taking them. Both because they got rid of the anxiety, but because of how they made me feel. It was just this feeling of, of calm that was so hard to come by otherwise. So uh, my senior year in, uh, in college, I began to abuse Valium recreationally and got into a real hole with that. And uh, sometime that spring, I just dis- got really disgusted with myself. I was like, all right clearly you've become a drug addict. <laughs> like this this is not working. You know, I could barely climb. I was all kind of jelly limbed and sort of like losing muscle tone and, you know, just looking like I don't know, like I was in a rock band or something, all kind of pallid. And um I stopped cold turkey and, and that was very problematic. I ended up um, in the hospital here because it, it caused uh, you know psychosis stopping cold turkey is a very common symptom um, and, I, and i'm lucky that that that's all that happened
0: and so when you say psychosis tell us what that experience was about because that's something that isn't talked about enough the way in which a medication withdrawal itself can cause people to go into an extreme state to, to go into into a psychosis
1: You know, for me, it first manifested as just not sleeping. Like, boom, I suddenly stopped sleeping. And I I just didn't know enough about Valium to understand that that was going to happen. But then I just, it really felt kind of like a bad acid trip or something. Everything was very sort of diffuse and didn't quite look like itself around me. You know, derealization. Then I started to hear my name being called out from sort of random points in the sky. That's sort of uh, the way... I saw things, it looked like everything was in as a weird little picture frame and they were all sort of overlaid and coming at me. You know, I was very confused basically, both auditorily and, and, and visually. Yeah. So confusion, racing thoughts, thoughts that didn't feel like they were my own, disconnected thoughts, really frightening stuff. I mean, hearing your voice called out is, is incredibly frightening when, when you don't know where it's coming from.
0: If you're just tuning in, this is Madness Radio, and we're speaking with Matt Samet. He's a freelance writer and editor who lives near Boulder, Colorado. He's a former professional rock climber who was diagnosed with panic, depression, and bipolar and battled benzodiazepine addiction for 13 years. Matt is the author of Death Grip, A Climber's Escape from Benzo Madness. And all this was triggered by the cold turkey, the abrupt withdrawal from the the Valium. And then you were in the hospital and then you came out of the hospital. So it wasn't, this was only the very beginning of a longer process. So then, then what happened?
1: Oh, well, it should have been the end of the process if I had a shred of common sense. But um, you know, I was kept there for three days. They made sure I was okay. The worst of that kind of psychosis passed. It would have been helpful to have been told at that point that I would feel kind of out of it, and, you know, sick and a little bit crazed even for months, if not a year or two. But no one said that, so I I left, uh, I was told to go to N.A., I went to one meeting, but there's no one there, so I blew that off. You know, and I managed to stay away from from benzos for the most part for like another year, a year and a half. And then in 97 or 98, I just didn't feel that good still. I'd um, been on Cipro for a, for a, a tick bite, a tick-borne infection, and, and cipro is a, is a quinolone antibiotic, and those are quite bad to take if you're in a withdrawal state. But, you know, this wasn't really known at that point. I couldn't have looked that up on the internet like you can now. And, and I think taking that cipro sort of re-triggered a lot of that stuff, and I ended up back in another psychiatrist's office saying, "Look, I'm pretty depressed. I'm pretty anxious." what should we look at and so at that point i started back on i think paxil and back on benzos and and
0: did that psychiatrist look at the role that the medications could be playing in causing these problems
1: he didn't know i mean again you know it was the one hour kind of intake he had concern which was right to have about my valium addiction and, and my problems i'd had with benzos at first and um you know, I think was was cautious about prescribing. And, you know, I, I don't blame him. I mean I people are always looking for someone to blame, whether it's the patient blaming their doctor or whether it's the patient's family members blaming the patient for being addicted or this or that. And you know, I don't really want to blame the guy. I mean I I knew that I had an affinity for benzos and I went to him and said, I'm having anxiety. What about benzos? And you know, and we both sort of concluded that because I'd never abused Ativan, that it might be safe to take, and I know that I I had a role in that, and that I was in a certain amount of denial. Like I I should have been smart enough to to have stayed away.
0: And then what happened when you started taking the Ativan again?
1: You know, I was taking it here and there, and then that became two a day, and uh, I just didn't know that much about the situation. My understanding now is that. Of course, they work at first. You know, they're efficacious at first for anxiety, which is exactly why they're prescribed. But, you know, what I didn't know is that in a month or two, I was going to build a tolerance, and then they weren't treating anything. You know, in fact, they were going to be exacerbating my anxiety problems. So I, I do know now that that is what happened. You know, within a month or two, I just had to take them to stave off um, tolerance withdrawal, and
0: so now you. So at first they're efficacious; they help you with the anxiety and the depression. But now you're taking the drug just to prevent yourself from having withdrawal effects from taking the drug.
1: Exactly, and in the meantime, I've done nothing to face the root causes of my anxiety and depression. So whatever's driving, fueling that engine, you know, is still going on underneath it all, and the anxiety began to escalate.
0: So once that tolerance builds up and then you're taking it to stave off the withdrawal, then you're addicted. That's at that point is when you're addicted.
1: Yeah, and I was fully addicted. I mean, I tried twice in 1999 to quit, and I got down to, I think, a quarter milligram of Ativan, and I just couldn't pull the trigger on that last little bit. I'd just fold and go right back on to two milligrams, and clearly that should have been a sign. Uh, You know, I'd sort of do it on my own without telling the doctor I was trying to quit, and I you know again I don't even know if like the Ashton manual was online at that point or what you know and I certainly didn't go looking for information but I, I was just
0: So the Ashton manual is a is a really valuable resource for the, all these issues around benzodiazepine addiction and coming off Heather Ashton from the the UK has been really helpful to a lot of people.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean I I believe that that book saved my life.
0: Did the doctors see what was going on with the addiction? Did they recognize that this was actually causing worse anxiety, that continuing to take the benzodiazepines?
1: I mean, I'm sure experience, Will, has probably been similar to mine and that of so many other people that what doctors do is they prescribe. So when you go in there and talk about one prescription not working, their first response is always, well, let's try something else. It's never, let's get you off of this and then see how you feel. Because well, they'd lose you as a patient, right? I mean, that you're not going to come back if they're not prescribing. I, I, I mean, I don't, I don't mean to be so cynical, but I do believe that's that's part of it. So, you know, I don't think much scrutiny was given to the fact that, oh, it's, it's these benzos, you know? It would just sort of be like, well, there's this other drug out there called Neurontin, or, you know, to his credit, the doctor suggested herbs a couple times, but, you know, again, it was sort of, going straight from one thing to the other there was no we need to give you six months to just chill out without any any psychotropic you know agents in your and crossing the blood-brain barrier it's just let's just try this you know i mean like at the drop of a hat so by 2003 despite trying to get off a couple times and adding in or trying to substitute other things i just reached Total critical tolerance withdrawal is becoming non-functional again. And so that's when my dose began to increase. And over the course of the next year, to make a long story short, you know, my dose quadrupled. Uh, And I was also abusing Vicodin on and off at that time, which definitely didn't help. That made my anxiety way worse. I was just sort of a a rotting pill head.
0: So at this point, the response to the struggle you were in was to just increase your dosage. And for people who don't know what we're talking about here in terms of a withdrawal process and in terms of like struggling with the symptoms of, of benzodiazepine addiction. What, what was it like? What was it, the experience for you of being inside of that? Cause that really sounds like that was one of the most difficult times of your life.
1: Oh yeah. It was horrible, horribly bleak. I mean, benzos are uh, really disinhibiting. So my behavior was pretty far from how I am now. I mean, I, I was, pretty quick to anger and much more sort of extroverted than I am now, which is, is pretty painful, actually, if you're an introvert. You know, what happens with an updose when you're in tolerance withdrawal is you get some temporary relief, and you're pretty desperate. And so you just think, oh, thank God. I don't feel what I felt last week. Thank God the panic attacks have subsided. Thank God I'm getting some sleep. You know, with all the while probably lying to yourself a little bit that this is just simply how you'll feel now that you're on the correct dose of the medication it's all about dosages right so but then a month later every time i was up dosed i'd be in a worsening hell you know of 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 anxiety and panic and that and and so for me it began to feel pretty hopeless because i thought I'm totally addicted to these things, and I'm moving in the wrong direction now, but I don't know how to get off because I'm so hopelessly addicted
0: and What was happening to your your personal life and your work life while all this is happening?
1: I think personally, I was a wreck i mean I think three relationships had ended for me in kind of that period after lasting all of them would last about a year and a half, and i I wasn't a fit partner to these women and and, and they knew that and and I think all of them, too, had probably urged me to get off benzos in one way or another. You know, they were like, you know, look, this is something's going on here. So I I wasn't a fit partner.
0: And how was it at at work? You were kind of doing your best to hold it together, it sounds like.
1: Yeah, I mean, at work, I I could get through the day. I mean, I think when you're in tolerance withdrawal, um, you're semi-functional. At least each time you take your, your benzo, you're functional for a few hours. So I could kind of ride that up and down through the day. But... You know, I was writing a lot and I was certainly more disinhibited in my writing and, and not as cautious as I am now. Um, and I think that had an effect because, you know, I was writing about climbing and, and I got some negative responses and really internalized that as well. I mean, maybe some of that was just where I was at. but. Um.
0: And so when you say tolerance withdrawal, you mean the withdrawal that just comes from not taking your regular dose because you're addicted and now you're starting to have cravings for that substance.
1: Basically, I mean, what happens with tolerance withdrawal is that um, your body has built a tolerance to the drug, so that even while you're taking it, you're still in withdrawal. You know, it happens to heroin addicts too. So maybe you, you know, I mean, really saying you take it to feel normal is is almost a, not the correct way to phrase it as well, because you but you don't even really feel normal. You take it just to not feel super super sick. So your body is built this habituation and then something else happens when you're taking pills throughout the day. You know, I was at that point now taking a benzo four times a day, one milligram of clonopin is um, interdose withdrawal where each dose wears off and sends you into a, a real plummet before you take the next dose so that your anxiety gets way worse between doses than it would be if you weren't taking pills.
0: And the doctors at this point, they're really saying, well, look, you have a psychiatric illness, you have panic disorder, or you have bipolar.
1: The bipolar didn't come till later, but at this point I was told, yeah, major depressive disorder, lifelong anxiety disorder, no hope, all this needs to be treated. I was told that I was bipolar later after I had a bad reaction to Paxil.
0: Matt, what did you really need at that point? What would have helped you at that point when you were so far down in this terrible addiction and, and the with the tolerance withdrawal and needing the next dose of those benzodiazepines, what would have helped you?
1: I think what would have helped me would have been reading the Ashton Manual and realizing the root cause of what I was feeling.
0: You needed the right information. You, you didn't have access to the right information about what was going on with you.
1: I didn't, no. I mean, I, it was there on the internet. I just didn't go looking for it because I hadn't come to my senses yet and realize I needed to think for myself and solve this myself. You know, I was still turning to other people for solutions, so yeah, I think having access to the right information would have been huge. I would have known why I was where I was at, what to expect, and I would have had more solutions for extricating myself And, and then and then had that measure of hope that you need to carry through the very, very strong symptoms that will come.
0: So when was the turning point, Matt? When did you start you know, looking to yourself rather than looking to other people to start to figure out how to deal with the situation?
1: I mean, to be honest, Will, I, I didn't reach that point until the end of 2005 after my final hospitalization. All through 2005, I was trying to reclaim my life and, and my self-sufficiency with this self-guided taper, but because I was also still seeing psychiatrists and the therapist who I think was a true believer in psychiatry um, I still was looking outside myself for answers a big turning point after the final hospitalization was meeting another survivor Allison Kelliger who, who was here in Boulder and had been through all this exact same stuff and it actually started a benzo support group and just seeing another human being and and her empathy and her wisdom she'd gone into to counseling to help people through this very thing uh, w- was huge you know to know that for the first time i wasn't alone
0: so in a sense i mean it's it's kind of peer support is what you met. i mean this is something we talk about a lot in the mental health recovery movement and among psychiatric survivors that it's you know people who've been through it connecting with each other to show each other that it is possible to survive and and make your way out of it. I mean that was the key ingredient for you just from that one on one connection with one person who had who had been through it like that.
1: It was, yeah. And it was the first time I felt like I'd had a real dialogue with anyone as as two humans face to face who who care about each other, you know, who have the shared experience. Instead of I mean, I don't know what your experience was, but I, I felt like in these hospitals with these doctors, there's so much judgment and labeling and diagnosing and, and not much listening. The nurses were a little better, but they're all still drinking the Kool-Aid. So, mm. yeah, to just have that basic common sense, decent face-to-face you know, interaction, it, it, it was great. Yeah. And, 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 yeah, the, the proof that that we get better. And I, and I do think that's a really nice way of looking at it. I mean, we're, we're our best support for each other, those who have been through it.
0: And then Matt, how did you get from there to where you are now, and how did you actually pull yourself out of that terrible, terrible hole that you were in?
1: Well, I, I certainly listened to Allison and, and saw that time was gonna be my best healer. I got involved with a support group on Yahoo, which was very good for sharing stories and symptoms and things like that. I had distanced myself from psychiatry I was still on I think one med at that point so I found a general practitioner to help me off because I knew if I went to a psychiatrist I knew exactly what would happen and I really just gave myself time I mean it was it was it was very very hard it was hard to always be hopeful Uh, it was hard to always think that time was gonna heal this because you know for for some years uh, I could still have very bad days if not very bad weeks or months so not knowing how far the finish line was away um, and all those things. You know, there's a lot of doubt through those years, but again, I, the, uh, the main thing I did to get better was I just waited, which maybe sounds overly simple, but it's true.
0: And were there things that you were doing with your nutrition or with supplements or holistic health, or how were you kind of taking your care of yourself during that, during that time? I did
1: eat a lot of salad, a lot of fresh vegetables. I couldn't exercise that much, unfortunately. And I still had a lot of weight to lose from, from being on the meds. Um, I'd probably gotten up to 190 or 195. But as, as my body came back online, I began to walk more. I had a dog who was a, a crazy puppy at that point. He needed to be walked, so I was forced to walk, which was good. Even on days where I could barely lift my legs, I, it got me moving. And I often found that if I just stuck with it for 10 or 20 minutes, I start to feel a little better. I mean, yoga was huge for me, therapeutic yoga. And then as I got better, just sort of normal yoga classes. And then I began to be able to climb again too, which has probably been my main restorative thing. I mean, simply because it's my main thing, not because climbing is any sort of magic bullet, but it just let me kind of get back into myself again.
0: And then looking back on this whole process, what, what do you think is the best kind of way to approach benzodiazepine addiction? Are there some things that you've learned or some some basic guidelines that you would give to people who are maybe facing this or maybe listening to the show now and are, are having the same kinds of problems that you started to have?
1: People come out this so many different ways. I'm reluctant to give advice. I mean, I think what I would tell the old me, the guy who was still hooked on benzos, is listen to your instincts and do your research. I mean, those were the two pillars that eventually pulled me through. You know, it wasn't anyone else. It wasn't any one thing. It was, what is my gut telling me about this? And how much can I learn about this specific problem to reinforce what my gut is telling me? And then then you have the tools to begin to act. But looking outside yourself for an answer is the one thing that, that didn't work for me. I mean, it's the one thing that got me into, into all this trouble, I think, was believing that other people somehow had the answer, which they clearly did not.
0: And Matt, so this whole process that you went through really began with your concerns about anxiety and panic and what kinds of lessons have you learned about that? I mean, what kinds of things would you recommend to people who are maybe facing some questions about, well, I have this anxiety, I have this panic, what should I do?
1: Well, I think what I learned in the end, I mean, I don't have panic attacks anymore, despite being the same person more or less that I was when it started. What I learned was that anxiety is is instructive. It's not a disease. It's a symptom of a life lived out of balance. And whatever that whatever's out of whack is gonna vary between people. But I just don't I don't see it as a sourceless, rootless thing. I mean, for me it was rooted in feeling vulnerable, kind of in in the agora and public spaces because of this violence, then it was rooted in dietary causes. These all got tied up together. It was rooted in a lot of very negative self-hating thinking, which I've let go of too. And also, yeah, I think rooted in trying to sort of live a mainstream life or believe that I had to when I'm I'm just not that person. I'm a pretty reclusive person who likes to either sort of be off with the very few people I, I love and are closest to me, friends and family or off walking my dog or off climbing and otherwise I don't have any use for for society or cities or or things like that you know I just don't they just bum me out and so recognizing that that's perfectly okay was a huge step too just accepting that that's who I am you know because there's there is a lot of pressure to not be that way in society i mean introverts are in the minority so just tuning out other people's voices that say, you have to come to this party. You have to go here. You have to go to that. It's like, yeah, no, I don't. I don't have to do anything. So I think that was useful.
0: That's so important because you were really feeling these pressures to conform, to be someone that you're not. And instead of kind of listening to the anxiety that you were feeling as a messenger and as, as a teacher and telling you something about your life, you were like thinking, well, there's something wrong with me. I've got to be like, other people and then the whole process brought you to a place of greater acceptance for yourself that you're a unique person you don't have to be like other people it's it's okay to want to be more of a a person who's maybe more introverted or more solitary or more separate from uh the rest of society even if society is telling you there's something wrong with you that you've learned to accept yourself and say no this is this is who i am
1: yeah exactly and now i don't experience anxiety anymore because i'm not going against the grain of my my core being, you know, I just I do what makes me happy at the, at this point. You know, I'm not like a hedonist or something, but uh, I I recognize who I am and 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 live a life that accords with that.
0: Do you think that in some ways it's a process just of of becoming adult and becoming more human that maybe you were going through some of the confusion that young people go through and then you got trapped? into this horrible cycle of the medications but actually in the bigger picture it's really just about a learning process and a human growth or even a human developmental process of finding out who you are in the world.
1: Yeah I do think that's absolutely true Will I mean look at look at how many people in their teens and 20's experience quote-unquote psychiatric turmoil when what in fact is probably really going on is this growth process of Figuring out who you are in the world, where you end in the world begins, how you draw that boundary in a healthy way, you know, how you live a productive, healthy, fruitful life that that allows you to be who you are within within the confines of a, of a world full of other people. No, I, I absolutely agree. I think the guy in his 20s was, who I was, was the guy who would, would turn to a pill for an answer instead of looking inside, and now I know that to absolutely be a you know, fallacious way of viewing things.
0: Matt, I think when a lot of people realize that they're in this benzodiazepine trap and they're trying to come off and it's a protracted withdrawal and they've had these difficulties and a lot of them just aren't, they have, there's no guidelines, there's no clear signposts about how long it's going to take or whether they're going to get better. And tell us a little bit more about your whole process with what it actually took, what it all ended up looking like and now how it is that you know that you've really come out the other side of it.
1: Well, I think that given the long time frame that that I needed to heal and the uncertainty that I would heal, one thing that was huge for me, especially on the bad days, was looking at what I could do. You know, I know it's our sort of human tendency to focus on the negative. So say it's two years in and you're still uncomfortable driving. You're like, you know, I can't drive. I can't drive. My life's over. But maybe that's not entirely true. Maybe it's you can't drive on the highway, but in the last few months you've been able to drive down to the store. And I think looking at each success and appreciating it and savoring it was was huge for me because my healing was very up and down, very erratic. You know, I'd have a great week only to be... Plunged into hell another week. Um, I think another thing that helped me get better was learning to recognize triggers that would set me back on my healing, things like heat and stress and just the sort of common things that make us feel bad. And then saying, Oh yeah, that's why my symptoms are worse now. Not because, you know, the universe hates me or because I'm not gonna get better, but because it's a hundred degrees out and you know, my boss is shouting at me or or whatever. And then I think You know, there's a gradual relearning and reintegration process that happens with all this for everyone, you know, from the simplest things, from taking a shower to brushing your teeth, to shopping, to being able to be with your children again, you know, all the way on back to your career and your hobbies. And I think that doing things to the degree that I was comfortable on any given day was huge for me. It helped me strengthen myself physically mentally and emotionally and but i also know that i had to be the architect of those things so i guess that is the one thing i would say that for my healing i couldn't have other people push me i couldn't have someone say you gotta come on this hike because i know you can hike up that hill i would have to decide i'm gonna hike up that hill because i want to and so that was huge as well but you know it's been now about seven years total since i've been off all meds and i just I know I'm better really because I I can climb uh, well again for me is that I feel like I'm back in my body again and like climbing's just one thing a person can do but you know whatever it is that you do that sort of makes you you I think that one thing that we all have that we love the most I know that when I felt like I could do it again in the way that I remembered savoring it before benzos that's when I considered myself healed and and I think milestones like that are very important for people.
0: For people who are listening and maybe are needing resources or to find out more information, what are some of the key places that you would send them to to really understand this whole process of benzodiazepine withdrawal? You know, the
1: site where I started was benzo.org.uk with the Ashton manual, and that, I think, was a, a very valuable site for me. There's plenty of other good ones on the web these days, too. I read a lot of Peter Bregan's books and Robert Whitaker's books. There's books specifically on benzos like Worse Than Heroin, the benzo book. Recover and Renewal, I think, is a very valuable book by Bliss Johns. So I do think there's a lot more information out there than ever about this, which is, which is great.
0: And Matt, uh, remind us the name of your new book and also of how people can get in touch with you and find out more.
1: The book is called Death Grip, a-, a Climber's Escape from Benzo Madness. It's published by St. Martin's Press. So if you Google Death Grip plus St. Martin's, it'll take you to to my author page with them. I also have a Facebook page up, just Matt Samet, M-A-T-T-S-A-M-E-T. And I've been blogging also for, for Madden America. And my blog there is called The Other Side.
0: Matt Samet, thank you for joining us today on Madness Radio.
1: Thanks, Will, for having me on. This has been great.
0: You've been listening to an interview with Matt Samet. Matt is a freelance writer and editor. He's had articles in Climbing Magazine, Outside, and Backpacker. He's a former professional rock climber who for 13 years battled an addiction with benzodiazepines and has now been off of all psychiatric medication for six years. And he's the author of the recent book, Death Grip, A Climber's Escape from Benzo Madness, published by St. Martin's Press. That's all the time we have on Madness Radio. Thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to Madness Radio, Voices and Visions from Outside Mental Health, co-sponsored by The Icarus Project, Portland Hearing Voices, and Freedom Center. Madness Radio is hosted by Will Hall, and producers Leah Harris. Madness Radio is based at KBOO in Oregon and can be heard on FM stations on the Pacifica Radio Network. Listen on the internet at madnessradio.net and on iTunes. Contact us at radio at madnessradio.net.